My name is Ben Lowe, I'm one of the pastors at the church, and it is my absolute pleasure to open up God's Word with you and explore uh, the next passage in the book of First Samuel. And we've been in a series for a while now in the Old Testament book of First Samuel, and so I'll have you, if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to First Samuel chapter 30. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we can surely get you one. The text is also going to be um, projected onto the screen too. Uh, If you'll notice, if you've been around, you'll notice that we fast forwarded a little bit. We have been going, trying to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but every once in a while we have skipped some chapters. Every time we do, I get many emails about why we didn't do certain texts. And I like that people pay attention. Uh, we're fast forwarding because, just because. And if you have emails to send about that, you can send them to victor at gracepca.com. Victor at gracepca.com. We are now in First Samuel chapter 30. And we find that David is still in the wilderness. Uh, David, our hero, has been in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place of testing, we've seen, and formation. And what we have in 1 Samuel chapter 30 is David's final test. Remember final tests? The cumulative tests? Where you're tested on everything you're supposed to have learned thus far. Before the pages turned to the book of Second Samuel, when David becomes king, we need to know that David has learned the character that David has, the faith that he needs to be king. And in many ways, in this one chapter, David is faced with all of his previous tests and under greater pressure than we've ever seen him um, under. And the question is, will he pass? We're introduced to two different locations. Um, You know, there's a lot of place names in the Bible, and a lot of them are unfamiliar to us. There are some familiar ones, Jerusalem. Bethlehem, I hope to make two familiar to you today. One is the city of Ziklag. Can you say Ziklag? Ziklag. And the other is the banks of the Brook Besor. Can you say Brook Besor? Brook Besor. Both represent moments in David's wilderness wanderings and in ours. The city of Ziklag is the place where things go from bad to worse. Where you think your life has bottomed out, but there's actually another level below that one. We all sometimes get to Ziklag, the level below, the level we thought was the lowest. Life can surprise you with how broken it can be. The brook Besor represents the place where we don't have strength to go on. Have you ever felt like you don't have strength to go on? 
David shows us how to navigate our time in Ziklag and our time on the brooks of the bank Besor. And he does it while taking his final test. Are you eager to see? Well, you're stuck here with me, so I guess you have to. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll jump in. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for David's story. And we've seen that David's story isn't written for him alone, uh, but for all who wander. All who find their, themselves in places of doubt and confusion and pain and suffering for every man, woman, and child who has been to Ziklag or been exhausted on the banks of the brook Besor. We know these places in our own life, Lord. And so it is helpful in your word to see someone navigating them with poise and with grace. May we learn from David today and ultimately be pointed to the greater David, Jesus Christ. We give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're about to be thrown right into the middle of the action, so I'm going to give a little bit of background. David is the anointed king of Israel, and he has been on the run from Saul. Boo! Israel's current king. And he has taken up residence, since we've last met him, in the land of the Philistines using a city called Ziklag as his home base. And if you'll remember, David is not alone, but he has 600 men around him, as well as their families and children. Misfit toy people, broken people who have gathered around David, hoping that he would be the new leader of Israel. Well, David and his 600 men have been out on a military expedition Exposition and are now returning to Ziklag, which is a three-day journey on foot. So a three-day journey, battle, and a three-day journey back. Tired warriors. What they don't know as they return home is that a band of marauders, Amalekites, bad guys, have come out of the desert and raided their city and have burnt Ziklag to the ground taking all of their possessions, including the men's wives and families. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women And all who were in it, both small and great, they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and his people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives 
also had been taken captive. And Nehemiah and of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. It's an intense scene. You have these men returning from a three-day journey. They're tired already, weary, anxious to get home to their wives, their children, their bed, their food. And so you can imagine their mood already, exhausted, frustrated, confused, whatever the mood was. And you expect them when they come over that ridge, what they expect to see is home. And they're imagining what it might be to finally be amongst your loved ones. And to go over that ridge, what would it be like to see smoke, flame, your city destroyed, the people gone, everything's gone. It would have been absolutely devastating. That little short paragraph, three times we're told that the, the wives and the children were taken. Three times, a Hebrew technique to help us process the level of devastation that had happened to, to them. And we're told that the devastation was so great that they wept until they had no more strength to weep. I've been in that place. You've cried all your tears. You don't even have the strength to cry anymore. 600 men wailing until they have no more strength to wail. Grieving. And where there's grief, there is almost always anger. And that anger has to go somewhere. And in this case, it gets targeted at David. The men get so angry that they want to stone David needing to place their emotion and their pain somewhere. So I think it's accurate to say that this moment in the wilderness is probably David's lowest moment. It would have been okay if David had been killed by Saul or the Philistines, but by your own men? After this level of devastation... What will David do under this acute pressure? Will he break down in despair? Will he run? Will he rely on his own strength? What he does is amazing. Verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It's one of the greatest buts in scripture. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And that verse is very carefully worded. In the ESV, that version, which I am using, it captures it very well. I think if you're using the NIV, it says something like, David found strength in the Lord. 
which is not phrased as well. Because the Hebrew is reflective and it carries this idea that this this strengthening himself in the Lord was a deliberate choice that David made in that painful moment. You see, change in the wilderness isn't automatic. Many people don't come out better. They come out bitter. Many people don't come out stronger. They come out weaker. Many turn to anger and bitterness and despair. And it's understandable because the world can take so much from you. But David has learned some things from his time in the wilderness. He's been there a decade by this by the time of this story. And what he's learned is that as much as the world can take as much as the world can take away from you, it can't take God from you. It can't take faith from you. Everything else was taken. His property was taken by raiders. His home is in smoldering embers. But the Amalekites could not take God from him. He could no longer say, my house, my city, my possessions, my children. But he could still say, my God. And what he learned is that having God is enough. Enough for strength for today and hope for tomorrow, as the old hymn says. And so how he strengthened himself in the Lord. I don't know what he did, what he brought to mind. He prayed, he worshiped, he reflected on all that the Lord has done from him, the Lord's character. We don't know everything that he did in that moment to strengthen his interior while the exterior was all out of order. He did something and he brought strength to his own heart. We know the one thing he did, he called his pastor. You can call yours. He calls his pastor Abiathar for counsel. Verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Amalek, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue David inquiring of the Lord. And we've seen the ephod before, if you've been with us, right? The ephod is this means by which the king can inquire of God in moments of distress. And it has symbolized throughout 1 Samuel what it means not to do, not to work salvation from your own strength, but to rely on the Lord and his word and his direction And throughout David's time in the wilderness, has he always inquired of the Lord? No. It's been a mixed bag. (laughs) Sometimes he's inquired of the Lord. Sometimes he's tried to take matters into his own hands, usually by taking up a sword, right? But here, at the lowest moment, 
when he is so desperate, he has no self-sufficiency. He knows he can't solve this problem. He has nowhere to turn but God, and in his desperation, he does. He inquires of the Lord. He, he passed the tests. He asks God, what do I do? God says, go back. Go get them. Find your wife and your children. He's learned something along the way. He's learned to trust the Lord and the Lord's word no matter what. He's learned that you can find strength in the Lord when the world takes away so much from you. He has learned faith and prayer. We also see that he's learned mercy and restraint. Now, I'm going to spoil the end of the story for you. Do not throw your, keep your tomatoes to yourself. Do not throw them up here. David is going to rescue everybody. He's going to recover everything that was lost. Now, I tell you that because it's not the focus of the story. Actually, the victory of David is a little footnote. It takes four verses, the battle. But what happens before and after gets a lot more time in the text, which means that victory is sandwiched between two instances that we're supposed to pay attention to, instances where David shows mercy and restraint. So we find that David has found his strength in the Lord, and he and his 600 men go to recover their wives and their families to rescue them if they're able, which means more travel. If you're keeping track, that's three more days on foot, a day of weeping until you're exhausted, more days on foot, and they travel and they eventually get to a place called the Brook Besor, verse 9. So David sets out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the Brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 men, so a third of their crew, stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. So the army reaches this brook called Besor, and they dismount, and the soldiers wade in the creek and they splash waters on their face and they sink their toes in the cool mud and they stretch out on the grass and they hear the command, let's keep going, and 200 say, I can't do it. You go on without us. We are simply too weary to go on. Here's the question to wrestle with here. How tired does a person have to be to abandon the hunt for their own family? Answer, pretty tired. There are circumstances that can leave us on the banks of the Brook Besor. Old age can suck the oxygen from us. A deflating string of defeats. Divorce can leave you on the banks of the Brook Besor. Addiction can profound physical limitations, chronic pain, grief can absolutely 
lead you on the banks of the brook Besor. So what happens to brook Besor people? People who can't go on. We'll have to wait and see what David does and handles the 200. For now, we follow the 400 into the wilderness. Verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? So get this, they didn't know who this person was or where he was from when they showed him such hospitality and mercy. They had no idea whether he was enemy, friend, whatever. And the Egyptian said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant or slave to an Almelkite, and my master left me because I was sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev, And against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So the 400 men riding to get there, exhausted angry men meet a sick slave wasting away in the wilderness. And what do they do? They show mercy. They give grace. And we're told, the interesting part of the text is, why so many details about what they fed him? Why the stuff about the figs and the the clusters of raisins? And the answer is because this is a demonstration of David and David's men's compassion and mercy and grace. They know what it's like to be in a bad way in the wilderness and to be met with mercy and generosity and grace. Remember Abigail's story? Remember the figs? And the clusters of raisins that were brought to the men in their moment of need. A lost Egyptian couldn't have hoped for much in terms of care and compassion from a bunch of tired and vengeful Israelites. But somewhere along the way, David had learned something. David knew something about being ill-used in the wilderness. And in the midst of hardship, what it looks like to be treated generously. It's how God treated him. And what David had experienced from God, the Egyptian now experiences from David. He had learned mercy and generosity. And when we're living the Christian life, right, this is what happens. We pass on the experience that we're, of grace that we've been given by God. We pass on the God grace experience to the people we meet. 
They experience a piece of what we have experienced in Christ. We see that happening in David's story. And he's rewarded because this particular Egyptian knew the information, knew right where the Amalekites were. And they give him those directions. Now I'm going to summarize verses 16 through 20. Because of the Egyptians' testimony, these men eventually come across the armies that have taken the wives and the children. And then like a movie that you and I would watch from twilight until the next day, David and his 400 men rout the opposing army. And they capture back and recover their wife, wives, and their children. And that, of course, should be the climax of the story, your helm's deep moment. But that's not. It's four verses. The climax of the story is what happened when David comes back to the 200 who were left on the banks of the brook Besor. Verses 21 through 25. And I just want you to compare and contrast how David's men treat uh, the 200 and how David treats them. Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. All right, man, this is, this is cool. So imagine that you're one of the ones who went on. And uh, the guy on your right and the guy on your left, they were too tired to go on and fight the battle. And now you've come back and you've done the battling. You've done the fighting. You've done the, the recovering. How do you respond? You might feel the way that David's men felt. Because they didn't go with us, we'll not give them any of the spoil except every man should have his wife and his children. Sure. (laughs) Sounds fair, right? They hadn't worked. They don't get the spoil. But it's interesting. That voice that calls for just fairness is called the voice of a wicked and worthless character. Contrast that with David's response which is like pure gospel. What does David do to these exhausted warriors? First, he greets them, it says. And I imagine a kingly greeting. Ha ha! Good to see you, my friend! 
Good to see you. Let me tell you everything that happened in the battle. Here's your wife. Be reunited together. We have spoils for you. He greets them and then defends them. They want, his 400 men want the rewards to be divided up fairly for everyone to get what they deserved. But look at David's response. He basically says, none of us deserve any of this. He says, you shall not do so, my brothers. And he's still kind to them. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. He's saying it's God who's given us the victory. Our victory over our enemies was predicated upon the God's kindness and provision. Heck, you guys wanted to kill me. (laughs) It was through my prayer and my faith and the provision of God that we ultimately got to where we're going. The victory has everything to do with grace and God's goodness, not your skill. And that's not as he goes further in verse 22 when he says, who would listen to you in this matter? There's a little bit of shade there. What he's saying there, he's saying y'all are from Ziklag. Y'all are the Israelite island of misfit toys. Y'all don't have anything in your background to be proud of. All of you were picked up from a disreputable life and brought through no merit of your own into the net of God's goodness and salvation. And now in the wilderness, he's been forming us all into an army. And now they're on the way to becoming mighty men. But all through the grace of God, all of it was sheer grace. How could they talk about dividing things up fairly? How could they talk about deserving? So he welcomes them. He defends them against their detractors. And then he dignifies their choice to stay. It might be my favorite thing that he does. Note David's word. He says, they stayed back with the baggage. As if that had been their job. As if they had been tasked with that. Guard the supplies. They didn't want to guard the supplies. They couldn't go forward because they were too tired. But he dignifies their choice to stay. He welcomes, defends, dignifies, and then gives, blesses them with the spoils of the victory. You don't get half a sh- You get a full share in what has just occurred. You are not second class in any way, weary one, he says. And then to cap it all off, he says, that's the way things are going to be around here forever. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. This is how we deal with the exhausted warriors in our midst. Now at this moment, David seems finally kingly. He has emerged from the wilderness and like a desert flower, he has bloomed into royalty. He's making a statute here. He's making a law. That's what kings do in Israel. Here's the thing. He has no authority to do this at this point. 
but it's almost by the virtue of his character, by the virtue of what he has learned. He makes this statute, which is in effect all the way down the road to the time of the writing of 1 Samuel. It's really remarkable. We get this sense that after a decade in the wilderness, which has been so difficult for David, this is his final exam, and he's passing with flying colors. His character, his moral character and faith has bloomed. And you get this sense, oh, he's finally ready to be king. And that's the sense we get in the last paragraph, verses 26 through 31. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Auror, in Sipmoth, in Estamoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jemuelites, in the cities of the Canaanites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Akthak, in Hebron, in all the places where David and his men had roamed. And so what we know about the Amalekites is that they had raided not just Ziklag, but all of these other cities. And so what David is doing is he's returning not only the spoils of his people, but he has recovered everyone's, what everyone has lost, and he's now giving it back to all of these different cities which have experienced loss. He's recovering what has been lost, and he's rebuilding Israel. You just get the sense that he's about to be king and things are finally going to turn in the nation of Israel for the better. That's the story. What do we learn from it? Well, as we wrap up the story of David in 1 Samuel, and this is the last time we see David in 1 Samuel, it's really helpful to remember that before you get to 2 Samuel where David is king and all this good stuff happens to him and he prospers and is enriched and for a time is the greatest king in Israel's history, it's easy to forget that there was 10 long years of suffering and struggle, of groaning, of refining in the wilderness that was necessary, that made it possible for him to be a great leader. It didn't happen automatically. Some people come out of the wilderness and they look the worser for wear, (laughs) bitter, upset, And it's not that David was perfect or didn't make things worse from time to time. But what David understood is that you need to keep on trusting, turning back to God in the midst of very difficult circumstances, painful circumstances and confusion. David kept his heart alive to God and it changed him. 
It allowed him like a desert flower to bloom. The wilderness had changed David. So that there was this wellspring of mercy that could give a bountiful offering to his enemies. So that he could give grace and rest to exhausted warriors. So he could find strength in his God in the most difficult circumstances. And in all of that, he shows himself now ready to be used by God. And of course, David's, David's dead by the time this is written. This isn't written for David. This is written for us. Because our journeys include times, seasons spent at Ziklag. Where things got worse and worse. Where you got to what you thought was the last straw. And then you pulled the straw that was after the last straw straw. There will be times in our lives where nothing makes sense. Where life will take more away from you than you ever thought it could. And you won't understand what's going on. You're going to ask, where's God? And why does it have to be this way? And in those moments, you have to decide, do I turn my face towards God and trust Him? Or do I turn my face away from Him and become angry and become bitter and begin a life that makes me weaker rather than stronger? But David strengthened himself in the Lord. I can't promise you that when you go through these seasons that you're going to know why. I can't promise you that you're going to have your questions answered. Most of the time, they're not going to be. I can't promise you that it's always going to make sense. But I can promise you that if you turn your face to the Lord, God will meet you there. And there is strength to be found in every situation. And in Him, there is always hope for tomorrow. He is good and faithful, compassionate and kind. And if we do not see the purposes for our time in the wilderness in this life, we certainly will in the one to come. As he takes us from the pasture to the palace on the journey of David. It's the journey of the human soul. And as we see David bloom, we are to imagine in our desert spaces that one day we will bloom. Either in this life or in the one to come. And in those moments when we don't feel like we can go on anymore. When we just like lay down by the brook besore and say, I can't fight. Lord, I can't do it. Ziklag is too hard. It's been too many days. And I'm too exhausted. David gives us a window into the heart of our God. Who greets us in our weariness. And says, ha ha, don't worry. The battles that you can't fight, I've already won the victory. And I've gone and I've recovered everything that's been lost for humanity. And I've brought it back to you. And you get a full share in the kingdom spoils. None of it's deserved. It's all grace. And he didn't have 400 buddies to help him. He went to that cross all by himself and says, weary ones in the desert, take a rest. It's okay. 
One day your flower will bloom too, like David's. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of David and what it teaches us. That it teaches us that our times in the wilderness, in our own cities of Ziklag, when we're exhausted on the, the banks of the brook, that there are things to be learned and a God who is good. That our time in the wilderness is not purposeless, but you mean to use these seasons of pain and struggle and confusion to prepare us, to be, prepare us to be your servants, to prepare us for glory. And so I think these stories are meant to make us patient in our in, to endure these seasons in these times, to do it with steadfast hope. And to also remind us of your character, of who you are, so that in these moments we might hear you speak, in our exhaustion, in our pain, that you come to us with such a tender voice, and you mean to recover all that we've lost. And so we will look in faith, and we will strengthen ourselves in the Lord this morning. And we thank you that your word helps us to do that. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.